find a way to save the day. Let this be the hour to speak truth to power. Hi, everybody. I'm Charles Ortlib. Welcome to my weekly show, Truth to Power. That was Chris Davidson singing Truth to Power, a song I wrote with him. Chris is a British singer-songwriter who was discovered by Freddie Mercury's manager. You can find that song and all the other songs I've written with him on iTunes, Spotify, and all the streaming services. Truth to Power is also the title of my book, which is a history of the AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome epidemic, and my newspaper, New York Native, which I ran from 1980 until we went out of business in 1997. On my show, I explore a lot of the unresolved stories we covered about the politics and science of AIDS and chronic fatigue syndrome. And if you think these issues only affect a tiny minority of people, please stay tuned because you have some surprises coming. Today's show is about the autism and chronic fatigue syndrome connection. I interview Dr. Michael J. Goldberg, the author of The Myth of Autism. Goldberg is the president of the Neuroimmune Dysfunction Syndrome's Medical Advisory Board and has been on the clinical teaching staff at both UCLA and Cedars-Sinai Hospitals. Dr. Goldberg has challenged the conventional wisdom about autism, arguing that it is not psychological or developmental, but a very treatable medical disease. Based on 23 years of treating patients, he believes there is strong evidence to show that autism is caused by a dysfunction of the neuroimmune system and often by secondary neurotropic viruses that impact the neuroimmune system and brain. He believes that autism is connected to illnesses such as chronic fatigue syndrome and ADD, ADHD. Goldberg explains why he thinks it is a tragic mistake to blame vaccines for autism when infectious agents seem to be the real culprits. Dr. Goldberg's book, which he wrote with his wife, should be sent to every parent whose child has gotten an autism diagnosis. Everyone at the CDC and NIH should be asked to read it closely. If there is such a thing as a Bible of autism, I think it is Dr. Goldberg's book. I spoke to Dr. Goldberg recently on the phone. Dr. Goldberg, your 2011 book, The Myth of Autism, could also be called the myth of chronic fatigue syndrome and autism because you kill two controversial birds with one stone. Uh, Let's talk about how you got from chronic fatigue syndrome to autism or what you refer to as neuroimmune dysfunction syndrome. Well, I am pleased that you and more and more people are beginning to see this connection because as my wife consistently reminds me, it is not coincidental that first you have this mysterious new pandemic called chronic fatigue syndrome given a psychological orientation and within a short time later you have what I will explain is this mistaken idea of an autism epidemic in children and the fact that they follow that that the autism mistake followed chronic fatigue I believe strongly is all connected and unified by the one thing that came consistently out of the research in the early days of chronic fatigue. Many people know my wife was ill, got me to start attending research meetings. And while a lot of different things were said, looked at, ideals thrown out, the consistently objective material kept coming back to something immune-related, something likely viral. And that 
ultimately led into the fact that what we were looking at was best defined as a complex immune, complex viral disorder. We came up with the term you alluded to, NIDS, neuroimmune dysfunction syndromes, as a way to try to bring back to the medical community what was an evolving mixed up labels of ADD and ultimately autism and other psychological disorders such as OCD, anxiety, where some of those may still have psychological origins. What was evolving as a pediatrician at one point with a very large regular practice is these things were happening in children in a medical way, not a psychological way. Do you remember the moment that you basically said, Eureka, these things are all connected? Was there a day or an event, a specific moment when this all came together for you, or it was an evolution? You know, I would have to say that as a clinician, I prided myself, I didn't want to go into academic test tube research medicine as a clinician. Patterns always hit in my mind. And if you look at the first, you know, Eureka moment. It was when, from a metabolic direction, a biochemist came to me with profiles on children with this emerging idea of quote-unquote autism, and those profiles looked the same as he was also getting on adults with chronic fatigue syndrome. Now, it ultimately came together when I met Dr. Ismail Mina, Dr. Bruce Miller, and they could take the neurospec and completely define the abnormalities and the findings in these children and how they related to the neurospec in adults. So I would say to you, this was all evolving during the 80s. By early, mid-90s, there was no question this was a similar disease. And in fact, I'll jump ahead on you slightly and bring up that in 1996, at an AACSF meeting, American Association of Chronic Fatigue Syndrome, I was doing poster presentations. In 1994, I had presented the early neurospec on children with, with ADHD and chronic fatigue comparison. And then in 1996, I presented a comparison of autism and chronic fatigue. And in an audience that was many, many heavy-duty academic researchers, I stuck my neck out and made the statement, if you were an adult with a mature brain, mature immune system, and this process hit you, you wound up with variations of chronic fatigue syndrome, and what was now emerging was not present for me in medical school, adult ADD. If you were an older child or a teenager and this happened, you got ADHD variants and chronic fatigue syndrome. And if you were a younger child with an immature brain, immature immune system, you got the mistaken idea of autistic symptoms. I pride myself that in that audience, nobody laughed at me. And two years later, many were coming up and saying it made a lot of sense. My frustration that comes through my voice is if this was 96, 98, 
how come things have not changed for these parents and children today? Or, and I might add adults with chronic fatigue. Well, I was going to say because the NIH just gave out um, three grants, and uh, one of the people who did not get the grant is someone whose ideas are very close to yours, Jose Montoya. And I'm still in kind of a state of shock about that because one of the grants is going to someone that's treating chronic fatigue syndrome as if it's a genetic disorder, and another one is focused on the microbiome. But meanwhile, Jose Montoya you know, is way down the road. I mean, he is looking at this as a viral illness and he's treating it with antivirals and he's supposedly getting great results. And yet the NIH decided that what he was, what he's doing is not good enough for them. So, I mean, in, in some ways, I mean, chronic fatigue syndrome has not made uh, that much progress in those 20 years either. Um, well, then you start to touch on what unfortunately becomes a major problem with our research community and science right now. I pride myself. I graduated UCLA Medical School. I thought the medical system was wonderful. We were going into a golden age. We understood viruses. We were learning the immune system. We had science. And then, think what you're saying. In the early 90s, this Epidemic starts to break out in this country and around the world, the mistaken idea of chronic fatigue syndrome. What I've been told and, and have never had contradicted is in the early days, researchers came out from the CDC. They looked at it. First thought it was Epstein-Barr, a form of mono. And when it was not true Epstein-Barr, true mono, instead of saying this was something weird, mysterious, needed research. What I'm told is they went on vendettas, that this was not viral, these titers didn't mean anything. And even when researchers like Dr. Montoya published major article that showed you could, you could get a fourfold change in titers with viral treatment of these patients, it's been relegated, pushed aside, and sadly, when I said that all of the objective material kept coming back to immune system and viruses, Chuck, you're touching on the fact that whatever is going on, starting with chronic fatigue, and I'll tie it completely into the mistake of autism in children, the NIH, our research establishment, want to focus on genetics, developmental and they are completely missing a real, severe, chronic viral, chronic immune disease. Why was there so much hostility towards chronic fatigue syndrome at the CDC? I don't know whether you've read Hillary Johnson's book, Osler's Web, but, you know, it's a 700-page book, and it took her 10 years to write, and she basically parked herself down at the CDC, and she was treated horrendously by them. I mean, she was a very prestigious journalist at that point. And just one scientist after another was incredibly hostile to, to the whole idea of chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, almost from day one. It, it's kind of uncanny. Do you have any explanation Chuck, for that? Short of the explanation I gave, where when you're talking high-level academic people, they literally had mud on their face. And what I was told went on personal vendettas that this was psychological. I cannot give you any logical reason 
for what we all know has unfolded over these years. In fact, as I attended research meetings, I mistakenly thought that everything might change when in 1992 was an NIH-sponsored symposium, and they announced at that meeting, think of the orientation, some of these crazy adults, literally, again, they were calling this yuppie flu. They thought it was psychological. Some of them had low natural killer cells, and I will never forget this statement at the meeting. When you have low natural killer cells, anybody is prone to viral activation and cancer. What has happened since 1992? We have massive situations that tie into viral activation. We have increased cancer, increased autoimmune diseases. And like you say, for whatever the reason up to now, the NIH, the CDC research is focused genetics, developmental, and not on what is really happening. I could not give you a logical reason for that. But for me, as a pediatrician, that I would like to say is well-trained, the real shock came when we got to the children. Sadly, you and others know this, the medical system can mistakenly make fun of adults. We all know all adults are psychosomatic. I'm saying that facetiously, would never believe that. Certainly never believed my wife was psychosomatic when she was getting sicker and sicker. And my son finally said, Dad, you got to help her. Nobody else is. And working with her, working at that time, seeing some parents who were essentially the adults of children I was working with as a pediatrician, I had no inclination of any kind that this was starting in a psychosomatic direction. But I always understood the dynamics of what you're saying massive mistake was made. I thought in 1992 it would correct. It didn't. And I must confess, I never believed the system could make this massive mistake when it got to the children. It actually started in the children with the ADD variants that you can watch in the pediatric literature of the 1980s. I, I was interested in ADD in medical school. Like every pediatrician had one word said about autism, never really studied or learned about it. But there was a Dr. Lovas at UCLA, so did hear about it. But the start of the mistake was if, you, if I go back to medical school, UCLA, a child with ADD, we talked about hyper-ADD, and that was a child who was bright, intelligent. There was nothing physiologically, medically wrong with that child, but they couldn't stay in their seat. The joke from everybody was if they were in their seat, they were brilliant. Now, in the 80s, you started having all these variants of ADD, Mixed ADD, quiet ADD, ADD with hyperactivity, ADD without hyperactivity. And it became obvious that any child given one of those labels who was not bright, sharp, alert, 
was not totally healthy medically, did not really have ADD. They had the start of this medical disorder. And the only other justification I can give you for this mistake is if you look at ADD, who was in charge? Psychiatry, not pediatrics. When I learn about ADD in medical school, it's, it's, you turn this over to the psychiatrist. So the other justification is you had the psychiatrist coming up with labels and names they were familiar with, but never stopping to look that there was a medical origin now emerging in these children. Um, isn't the word that is most troubling to the establishment uh, about autism from your, from your perspective, the word infectious? I mean, you, you have said that this should be turned over to, I think, to pediatrics, experts in pediatric infectious diseases. And just, well, just, the, this is, just the idea yeah. of talking about autism in the context of infectious diseases must drive the establishment crazy because it would, it, because it would mean... You know where... I'm sorry, go ahead. Where I have hope, Chuck, is I think that if you... If we use the word establishment, right. this is being run by people right. who have led us down this path, okay? But where I, where I have personally believed for years, the day you recognize this illness, start to deal with it, children, then adults, you actually lower health education welfare everybody in the country benefits. So the truth is, if the tr I believe if reality occurs, everybody would want to get behind fixing this. Now, as it turns out, yes, the establishment, as we use the word, has done everything in life to avoid these viruses. If I tell you that I frequently will tease the new patients in the practice, these titers are elevated, but the system doesn't consider it significant until one day I had two parents jump up and go, oh, no, we consider it significant. And I, with my mouth open, goes, what are you talking about? And it turns out they were nurses in transplant medicine, and this can be confirmed when it comes to transplants you are testing for all of these herpes viruses. They worry about passing them. And yet in the rest of medicine, they're trying to pretend they don't exist. That makes no sense scientifically whatsoever. So I cannot defend that scientifically. Well, I mean, from a public health point of view, do you think that it's possible that there is fear of causing panic? That if you start discussing autism and chronic fatigue syndrome in the context of transmissible viruses, that it's a path that the CDC and the NIH, they really don't want to go down because the problem is that we're 30 or so years into this. You know, the, the horses are out of the barn, so to speak, um, or the genie is out of the bottle, the mixed metaphors, that, that such a disaster has been created by this mistake that they don't know how to cope with it. 
and they don't know how to deal with the public relations issues. They don't know how to deal with, you know, the problem that the credibility of the CDC and the NIH will be in question. Do you, do you think that's part of the problem, or, or do you have a different yeah. explanation? You know, Jeff, it's very difficult to hypothesize. Okay. I will say to you that who's ever stuck to this view, and when we get to autism, I will explain that it's essentially impossible to call these children canner-autism. It has been, without any question, a massive mistake. What is the motivation for that mistake? Probably crosses many issues, including the fact if you focus on autism in children, people are making millions off of this disaster, and they have no motivation to change. If you're a genetic researcher, if you're a developmentalist, you're getting more money funneled in your direction than you've ever had before, and they have no reason to complain about that. But unlike maybe the years of chronic fatigue, when you were looking at how much pushback would be there if, if we truly recognize the problem, I still believe you recognize the problem, you fix more things than you hurt ever. But when it comes to children, thankfully, I have recently been exposed in discussions that this Think of chronic fatigue in adults. Now think of this mistake, autism, in children. By the system talking using autism, most normal pediatricians, what I allude to, pediatric subspecialists, have not looked at this problem because they don't believe it's their territory to work with. And I would like to be optimistic that unlike the pushback that came about with chronic fatigue syndrome, you start talking to pediatric subspecialists. You talk to pediatricians that we have a real missed medical pandemic in these children, and there will be massive effort to focus and solve it. You've lost a lot of time, but you make the next five or 10 years a lot better if you recognize the problem than if you just keep ignoring it. Um, I want to go back to the relationship between uh, CFS and autism for a second and, and ask you, um, now, you're not surprised to find autism in a family where there's also chronic fatigue syndrome or chronic fatigue syndrome in a family where there's autism, right? I, I, I sort of gathered that from your, from your book. It's just, they also I, I think that you have to look at, if you make this connection, that there's something going on between the immune system, potentially chronic viruses. The other connection that started coming through in the early days of discussion of this, when the CDC said yuppie flu, what were they alluding to? College educated people that were suddenly acting, you know, wrong not acknowledging that there was a medical problem. Well, it's very interesting that when talking about autism, Canner alluded to the fact these were brighter than average families and children. So somewhere in the early mid-80s, again, as a clinician, I've always had to rationalize, how do you explain what is happening? And rather than any idea that you were going to get a chromosome or genetic disease, what became obvious is there was going to be some kind of connection 
between the genes for intelligence and the genes for autoimmunity. And I think time has shown that seems to be very true. This is not happening in families with, forgive me, damaged, retarded children. This is happening in families of many intelligent professionals. The children are born in a world I trained in. You would expect that child to go to college, be a future leader. And then when something goes wrong, they fall into this mistaken ideal spectrum. We're told we're really sorry. They're probably retarded. We're losing children that we can't do anything about. And this is my hope. Contrary to what happened with chronic fatigue, the minute you tell these parents their children could be helped, this is a missed medical pandemic, and start focusing on doing that, I think you will start a true medical revolution in this country to start to fix things, and that will get to the, both the children and the adults. What about a medical revolution in terms of treating chronic fatigue syndrome? You, in your book, you, I think you're, you make, it's no secret that your wife was your first chronic fatigue syndrome patient, right? And, Correct. And you came up with some form of therapy for her, and she's now well or recovered completely. Is that the case still? Yes. That was one of my lessons. Well, let's that, that's, that's use my wife. Okay as a lesson to all of this, because unfortunately it ties into the country. Okay. She gets ill. Doctors don't know what to do. Back in the 80s. My son's a helper. Okay. I start treating what is obvious. When you look at immune system, you start talking about food, things that trigger the immune system. You look at ways you can boost it, and I will stress this. Most of the things done out there have either over-boosted or hurt it to look at physiology. So I avoided a lot of things that my wife, the people were doing. I did look at an agent that had a almost miracle immune modulating effect to it. And using that over about the course of a year, this was very interesting. My wife went progressively better. And this I believe is the key that everybody's missing in these adults and children. One day she tells me, like a light switch, she's back to feeling well. And that is a simple way as I could say what I think goes on in the body. We are all prone to autoimmunity. We are all prone to various stresses. Our immune systems and our bodies are designed to try to keep us in balance, keep us healthy. At some point, Whatever this illness is, you get too far out of control to, to, for the body to do its job. You don't fix that by megadosing, especially in children. You don't fix it by a lot of ideals that have been done. But what holds up physiologically is start working on getting that body back to normal. And somewhere it can become normal again. Did you, did you use antivirals uh, for your wife? Did you yes. Yes, I did. Part of what I've learned over the years, this is open for research discussion, is I believe the viral component is enormous. And I don't believe you can deal with the immune system and stresses if you don't suppress a big stress, the virus. 
But I'm not convinced at this point that what so far I see as the viral components is the origin. I still believe it's a complex immune, complex viral process, but that's what we should be researching and getting to much better answers to fix the immune system. What, I mean, what percentage of doctors recognize that there's a viral component to autism at this point, would you say? The, is it really a minority? I mean, where are we? These days? I would sadly say very few. Okay. But part of that, let's look at autism. I joke that because I was at UCLA, I heard about this crazy guy doing these crazy things with these crazy children. And that was my introduction to autism. And I find out that other pediatricians were told what I was, that if I saw one child like that in my entire lifetime in practice, it was one too many. And I've heard that from other parents from their pediatricians. So you have to start off with the concept that nobody out there really knew much about something called autism. I'll come back to, to it for you, but the key point is it was defined as a psychological disorder. It was a different relative of schizophrenia. And most pediatricians and medical professors didn't learn about it. Now, here's the problem. When all of these children start presenting and they are essentially not compatible with what Dr. Kanner called autism, in his, in his literature, and this was repeated many, many times, 43 to 1965, it was linked to schizophrenia, which was psychological, of course, and the concept was that, that, this, that a kid with schizophrenia was normal for a period of time, then fell into this weird world. And the consistent part about autism was that child was never in our world. Most of these children are normal. The first 12, 15, up to 18 months. And by that definition alone, they can have something called autism. Now, I express optimism because, as I tell many of my families, I wound up talking to a very high-level pediatric academic professor in your ivory tower, and not in two hours or two days, but in less than 15, 20 minutes, he goes, Mike, you're talking about an ASD phenotype. And that's been the revolution, that there's a whole side of pediatrics that if they start to look at this and realize it's not autism, they'll look at it medically. But the system has avoided that happening for the parents, and the parents out there are organized to fight autism. They're organized to make a lot of mistakes, but they're not fighting the simple truth that would win. This is not autism. Their children have a medical disorder, and that could change everything. Then it gets to the adults that we talk about. Well, I'm under the impression that a majority of the parents think that vaccines are the cause of autism and that that's part of your problem in terms of getting your message across. Is, is, is that the case? Unfortunately, it's become a massive part of the problem. 
if there's any defense for the system not to listen to the parents, it's discussion of vaccines. I come out of an era when there were still diseases called measles, whooping cough. All you have to do is look at how sick those children were and realize if there's no record of the real disease ever causing autism, it doesn't exist. How could a vaccine do it? Sadly, alternative physicians, biomed, people who hated vaccines to start with, would love to blame the vaccines. And the truth is, if we just went back to how I trained at UCLA in medical school, we could probably eliminate 95% of the problem right now. You don't give a vaccine when a child is ill. You didn't give seven or eight vaccines at one time. And if we just did that, it would be the start of taking extra stress when it shouldn't be there off of a child. I believe vaccines are important. They protect against major diseases, but I go back to medical school. They're an immune stress, and you don't vaccinate a child when they're ill. So, I mean, you sort of bring them into the, your theory by making them stressors or triggers, I think is the term you use, as opposed to co- well, as the cause. You still I, seem to find a place for vaccines in the paradigm. Well, let's... Let, Let's qualify that carefully, Chuck. This is the most touchy situation. And again, my goal is to cross over to major pediatrics, be acceptable to the academy. So you have to look at the issue of vaccines. As was actually discussed at a pediatric research meeting 15, 16 years ago, in some of the children, they may be that last thing that seemed to push the child over an edge. The word that was used was a temporal trigger. It was the last thing that the parents saw, but I have yet to meet a child that I couldn't show the parent how the multiple stresses were getting them there, and that vaccine was just the last piece, never the causation or the reason for it. Do you think um, that children should be tested for all of the viruses and issues that you think are at work in autism before they get a vaccine so that you know the status of the child, the immune status? Is there is that something that is done or should be done? Okay, perhaps in an ideal world, we'll get to the point that we're screening all kids at birth, we're doing certain things. Right. But I would say to you, a much simpler step is get back to basic pediatrics. Okay. A health, as I am getting through to parents, a healthy child has that 9,500-watt sparkle in their eye. Think about kids you know, Chuck, kids you see, grandchildren maybe, and a healthy kid has a sparkle. The thing that's being missed by physicians, neurologists, developmentalists, is when these children start to fall into that zone They're spacey, they're zony. This is not a psychological disorder. This is how we all feel when we're medically becoming ill. So where blood testing would be nice, I would tell you a simple point is just get back to evaluating a child. If a child is totally healthy, you work to avoid stresses, allergies, things. Probably you can follow a routine or a slightly modified 
approach on vaccines. If you're in doubt, blood should be run. Now, here's the problem. You've touched on it. When someone like Dr. Montoya is ignored and he put out completely credible research that you actually got a fourfold change in titers. Everything I ever learned in medical school was a single test by itself didn't prove something. But if there was a fourfold change, it was significant. Now, here's the catch. Can you imagine the look in my face when three, four years ago, I'm reading in a pediatric review journal, one to 1.5% of newborns have CMV, cytomegalovirus, a herpes virus, but it's asymptomatic. And approximately two years ago, I read that 1% of newborns have HHV6, but it's asymptomatic. Now, Chuck, this is the problem. In a medical world I trained, still greatly respect. You would never be foolish enough to think that a newborn with evidence of CMV or HHV6 is asymptomatic. You would have followed that child for years and the system would have probably made the connection that at least some of those children are going into this ASD issues. Instead, they're taking viruses that we know are harmful and they're ignoring them. It all gets into, let's get back to real medicine, real science, real pediatrics, and this could get fixed. Well, is, I mean, is there a generation of doctors that just do not get it, that, that, aren't even, that aren't shocked like you are when they read something like that? I mean, what is that? I, I'm going to tell you there's a huge generation of doctors, and it's almost scary to me, Chuck. I trained at UCLA herpes viruses. I trained viral titers. It was, the, it was the time they were evolving, these normals and stuff. I know doctors now that never heard about a herpes virus. The same system that's tried to say chronic fatigue is psychosomatic, that autism is autism when it's not, has also changed our medical education. So it's a little scary. Somebody sent me um, a prediction that I think you've commented on by Dr. Stephanie Seneff of MIT, that by the year 2025, mm -hmm. one in two could be autistic. Do you agree that well, we're headed in that direction? Or Okay, let's qualify this. Okay. If we want to say one or two right. may have this ASD phenotype, autistic-like symptoms, yes. I would tell you it may be a little exaggerated, but not by much. How do you go from something that was one or two per 10,000 to one in 500, one in 250, one in 125, one in 62, now one in 50, and not acknowledge that we have a medical crisis? This may be the biggest medical pandemic in world history. I come out of an era. You may too, Chuck. We grew up, there was something called polio around. How many of our parents were scared stiff every spring that their child could get this disease, be paralyzed, or die? Now, most people don't know this. At its height, when it was so bad, polio was one in 1,500 
children. This is one in 50, and it's not getting any of the medical focus those children did. So I will say in a scary manner, yes, if we don't recognize this, you're going to see it keep growing and debilitating more and more of our children. I'd like to hope we can stop that. I would like to talk about um, the herpes virus you mentioned, HHV6. Um, sure. As you know, I'm, <laughs> I'm writing a book on HHV6 right now, and um, I found it really interesting that you also mentioned HHV8 in your book. And I was curious about whether you've, you test uh, the kids you treat for HHV8 or, and whether you've ever seen HHV8 infections. Okay. Up to now, when I started, there was not good, consistent testing for HHV7, V8. You can still argue about some of it out there. Okay. So essentially, I have kept my basic work up to what I've been doing with the plan being that we replicate this in an IRB protocol. We'll be screening HHV7, 8, and every virus will be looking at multiple markers in the immune system. There will be ways to do this correctly that you will sort out which child is which. The key point right now, though, is to recognize what we're talking about, that these children don't have a developmental disorder called autism, Right. that these children are much more compatible with the disease idea. And once that recognition hits pediatrics, I believe pediatrics will have to answer all of these questions. You know, most people, when they see an autistic child, and, and we, all, we all see autistic children on the streets these days, and, but most people don't think that the child is in pain or feeling sick, um, but, your, but your work oh. suggests that their lives are like a living hell, that you, have, you know, that you have biomedical evidence that things are going so wrong in that child that they have to be in a state of pain. And I, I've been thinking that, that that might motivate the public to take you know, greater interest in autism as a disease rather than a development disorder if they recognize that that child is suffering all the time. Is, am I correct uh, on that? Chuck, story? you're more correct than I can say. I have frequently said to parents, if we recognize the truth, this is not a child miserable with some psychological disorder called autism but rather a normal child who is ill, has headaches, body pain, is suffering with his ASD phenotype. My statement lately would be if we identify the truth, we're committing child abuse out there by ignoring how uncomfortable these parents are. Again, coming from a medical system, I trained under professors that literally wrote textbooks in pediatrics and never learned about something called sensory processing disorder. This is another politically correct term for a poor child that's miserable. And instead of thinking of it as psychological or mysterious, think of it how we feel when we're sick. We can't handle noises. We can't handle sounds. Our body reacts badly to a lot of things. These kids are bluntly miserable, and we're ignoring it. What about people or children with Asperger's? Are they also feeling the same kind of pain? Are they also sick in the same way? Are they 
That may think of it like any disease. Okay. A disease can be mild, moderate, severe. Right. Some of these children are outright miserable. Others, let's take Asperger's, may be functioning relatively well, but if they're not truly Asperger's, and that's open for a great debate, then they're not becoming the child they should be. And that, to me, is not fair to that child. He may not be in the constant pain of a kid who has this disease in a bad way, but I come out of an era where we were all supposed to be the best we can, and no child can be what they should be if they're not healthy. Do you, when, you know, when you're able to help a child and years later the child is better, do they, are they able to articulate what it was like before they got better, what, they're, you know, what they were feeling? Are they able to tell their story? Very interesting. I actually have some children putting together their stories. And some of them, it's like a blur. You think that maybe the brain just kind of blocked it out. They were off in the zone, and as they get better, they, they don't think a lot of that day. But others can remember. They couldn't say something when they wanted to. They were literally, forgive me, abused by ABA doing repetitive work with them, treating them like they were dumb when they weren't. So some of these children do remember how they couldn't get through to people, how bad they felt. But most of them is interesting. I think the brain tries to protect them. It's kind of a blur back there. You know, um, I got really interested in the connection um, to between autism and chronic fatigue syndrome when I started reading some of the posts on age of autism. And one of the people who writes regularly there is someone you probably know of, Katie Wright. And um, yes, okay. Well, like, in, I don't think she, I don't think she put, puts this at the bottom of her posts anymore. But in 2009, um, this was her bio. Let me just read it to you. She, it says Katie Wright is a contributing editor to Age of Autism. She has two young boys. Her oldest son, Christian, is severely affected by autism. He developed normally smiling, talking, walking, only to lose every skill and every word by the age of two and a half. Upon the advice of medical professionals, Katie and her husband were advised to pursue only high-quality behavioral therapy, speech, and OT for Christian. It had no meaningful impact on Christian until his parents sought, out, sought help from D Dan, D-A-N, doctors who treated the underlying causes of Christian's descent into autism. Christian has improved but still has far to go. He has inflammatory bowel disease, the measles virus in his gut, and an immune system akin to a late-stage AIDS patient. That, that, last, <laughs> that last line, an immune system akin to a late-stage AIDS patient, what's that all about? Bringing in Katie Wright opens up a whole can of what has gone wrong. Her father, if he had given $50 million in the right direction, we would have these children well today. Unfortunately, he did, and many others did, how we grew up. You give money to academics, they're going to solve a problem. In this case, academics has been wrong, and they haven't fixed it at all. Unfortunately, Katie became part of the problem. I was at, this is not discussed in general. I was at the original Dan conference, Dallas, 1995. 
I watch them put together what I call this very convoluted diagram, how the peptides go from the gut to the brain, all these arrows going everywhere. And sadly, Katie and other parents are not told that at that conference, Dr. Gupta, board certified adult immunology, goes up to the board, crosses that out, wrote brain immune system, and he and I literally had darts and arrows thrown at us. Now, this is the problem. If the medical system is wrong, you're not going to change it by false science. All the ideas of biomed, this factor, that factor, have sadly, realistically never held true because let's go back to basic medicine 101. I was at a research conference, 1998, on social brain, top researchers from around the country. And by the t think about this, by the time we left that meeting, the following was said. If a child develops normally, the first 12, 15, 18 months of life, has any words, think about Katie's child, goes into this autistic spectrum, 100% it was immune or viral. Literally, and to show how absolute that is, if a kid developed normally the first 12, 15, 18 months of life, had no words, went into this A-word spectrum, 99% it was immune or viral, and the key point, not one credible researcher there had another mechanism. So where the medical system has been wrong, instead of parents coming together and fighting, like my mom did, probably your mother, our children are ill, help us. That's when we had measles, polio, whooping cough going around. These parents have been frustrated, either reluctantly accept, well, everybody's telling me my kid has autism, or they turn to biomed, which is not correct, and I will argue from neurospec, many of the things done in biomed was actually hurting the brain in these children. So we need to bring the parents, these children, back to medical pediatrics, not biomed, not alternative, real medicine. I hope you found this show interesting. I plan to continue my discussion with Dr. Goldberg on a future show. His incredibly important book, The Myth of Autism, can be found on Amazon. My book, Truth to Power, is also available on Amazon. By the way, I want to thank all of you who have helped make it a bestseller on Amazon's Kindle list. You can find more information about my other books at charlesortleb.com. That's charlesortleb.com. If you want to hear my prior radio shows, just go to ortlibradio.com. It seems only appropriate to close this show with the song, The Lady Upstairs. It has become a kind of anthem in the chronic fatigue syndrome community. I wrote it with Chris Davidson, and you can find it on iTunes, Spotify, Apple Music, Amazon, and all the streaming services.
legend in our building It's amazing she's still alive No one seems to ever visit Or does she even survive? When she sees her children she tries so hard to look glad But in her eyes we can see all the ones she never had It drifts down through the floor A total sense of dread But she's never ever gonna leave her bed Nobody cares About the lady upstairs Forgotten by everyone She's ever known Nobody cares She's home alone Like Emily Dickinson Without a poem Nobody cares Nobody cares Nobody cares About the lady She uses a calculator when she's counting sheep Begging a guardian angel for the tender mercy of sleep We do things she'll never do without thinking anything of it I fear if she never woke up, she'd probably really love it It drifts down through the floor, a total sense of dread but she's never ever gonna leave her bed Nobody cares About the lady upstairs Forgotten by everyone She's ever known Nobody cares If she's home alone Like Emily Dickinson Without a poem Yeah. 
Syndrome.